As you sit down, please open your scriptures to Hebrews chapter 10. We're still tarrying in that great conclusion of Hebrews, which he will then go on to explain and then apply to us in, starting in chapter 12. But verses 19 through 25 is the, the end of the argument, if you will. And we've been looking at that these past uh, four or five weeks. We come to chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and that's where we're going to camp this morning. Many of you know uh, C.S. Lewis's great book, a collection of talks or a collection of writings, uh, letters uh, called The Screwtape Letters. Uh, This is written in this style where a greater demon named Screwtape is writing to a lesser demon that happens to be his nephew named Wormwood, giving him advice and strategies on how to tempt humans and how to keep those that are Christians from growing. I love uh, what Christian blogger Corzone Latino did. Is he, he expanded on that. He used uh, C.S. Lewis's style and based it off the screw tape letters and continues to write in this style. And in one of his blogs, he writes this, My dearest nephew, Wormwood, I write you with greater urgency than mere words can convey. Two years ago, your subject crossed the point of no return when leaving the dark kingdom of our Lord Satan and embracing the enemy's son, Jesus Christ. Since you can no longer divert him from the delicious, simple lies like before, you must go for the jugular and attack the sources of his growth. He then goes on to talk about attacking his time in the word, God's word, and his time in prayer. And then the third, in the third paragraph, he writes this, Wormwood, you also cannot be too diligent in attacking his time at church or with other Christians. Make every effort to keep his relationships with other Christians in church superficial and not a channel of blessing the enemy Jesus uses to grow him and others. Sports, politics, books, news, friendly gossip about mutual friends, these are all encouraged topics of conversation. If the conversation turns to spiritual issues, especially his personal faith, watch out. Confessions of sin, praying for each other, or shared stories of the enemy's work will only strengthen the whole group. Indeed, this is part of the reason for his growth in the first place. That is why you must labor to show sow seeds of dissension, distrust, hate, or simply indifference towards others at his church. The local church is meant to be the primary way you grow. Let me say that again. The local church, the gathered community of believers, is to be the primary way in which you grow as a Christian. It's the primary means of grace in your life. 
It's where most of the gospel transforming work is going to occur. And it's also where we are most tempted to indifference, isn't it? This is what the writer of Hebrews is cautioning us against this morning. Indifference towards the body of Christ. Look with me at verses 24 and 25 of of chapter 10. There the author gives his third let us. And he says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. This charge comes in the context, like I said before, of the grand conclusion of Hebrews in verses 19 through 25. He has been arguing for 10 plus chapters of the superiority of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus over angels in chapter 1, the superiority of Jesus over Moses in chapter 3. In chapter 4, it was the superiority over Joshua. And in chapter 5, the superiority over the whole priesthood, especially the high priest. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that high priestly office. And in chapter 7, he argues that he comes from a greater lineage, Melchizedek's. In chapter 8, he says he, he created a better covenant, the new covenant, over the old. In chapter 9, he says he, is a, he created this in a superior place, the, the heavenly tabernacle, not just the earthly tabernacle. In chapter 10, he says... Jesus offered a superior sacrifice himself, not bulls and goats. And it is because of our great possession in Christ that Christians here in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, have an obligation to respond. And those are those three let us verses that we've been studying. Let us draw near in chapter, in verse 22. Let us draw near confident access through Christ. Confident access to God through Christ. In verse 23, let us hold fast. There he goes on to explain, you have full assurance of your salvation. Your salvation is kept, it is promised in Christ, and he who promised is faithful. And the third implication we're going to look at this morning is in verses 24 and 25. Let us stir up one another. Passionate, committed love for each other, passionate, committed love for each other in the local church. And each of these is put in the context of Christ's first and second coming. You have his first coming in verses 19, 20, and 21, and you have his second coming mentioned in verse 25. And we should live like this. We should live like this because of what Christ has done, And because Christ is coming back, we should live such lives because of his first and second coming. In other words, our Christian lives are to be lived in the tension of gratefulness and fear. Yes, that is the tension that the Bible holds. Gratefulness for what Christ has done for us and fear because he's coming back. He will return someday. And Jesus spoke of many parables that talk about this master-slave and the, he, the master leaves the slave 
in charge of the household and goes away for a long time. And the slave gets tired of his master's absence and he starts abusing his power and not treating his fellow slaves right and, and even getting drunk, it, it says. The master will come back at a time he does not expect. There is an element of doing what we do as Christians in gratefulness for what Christ has done and keeping in mind that he's coming back and he wants to find his workers working when he comes back. Sometimes we do things out of love and sometimes we, in gratitude for Christ. We serve him because we desire to please our Savior. We obey because we want to. We've been given a desire to obey out of love and gratitude for what Christ has done. But sometimes our flesh really wars against our spirit. Do you ever find that? Do you, do you ever find that you don't want to do something God wants you to do? If you've ever been there, the fear of the Lord is helpful there. It is helpful to know that there will be an accounting. It is helpful to spur us on, to stir us up to do that. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To remind ourselves that the capital D, day, as it says in verse 25, is drawing near, is approaching. You are a servant, and the master of the house is absolutely coming back. And that's the balance or tension that these three obligations of Christian community that we find in verses 24 and 25 are rooted in. Because apparently, about 30 years after Christ died and rose again, that's about when Hebrews was written, large numbers of people were not. They were thinking like many of us do today. They were already neglecting the body. They were already living, as, as one person put, said up here, Lone Ranger Christians. They were already thinking like many of us do today. It's just me and you, God. It's not just a symptom of the last 20 years of church. It's been there since the very beginning. A recent Gallup poll showed that membership between 1930 and 1990 in Christian churches was about 70%. In the last 20 years, it has dropped precipitously 20%. This is symptomatic of the idea that the Christianity, Christian does not need to live in community. It's just not that critical. I can do this. It's just me and you, God. The church is not indispensable in the believer's life. So the author uses some pretty strong language to start out here. If you look in verse 24, he says, Let us consider how to stir up one another. Stir up one another. If you have other translations there, some might say arouse others or stimulate others or provoke others toward the community of faith. It's a very emotional term. It's only used twice in the New Testament. The other time it's used is in Acts when Paul and Barnabas have that, have that sharp just disagreement, right? Barnabas wants to take John, John Mark on the second mission trip and Paul says, absolutely no way. He abandoned us on our first one. I'm not taking him. And they had such a sharp disagreement, same word here, emotional, passionate disagreement that they parted ways. 
And here it is used also for a passionate cry to live committed lives of love in community. And the author marks out three areas of commitment. And the first is to be passionate about love and good works. About love and good works. Look at verse 24 with me. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works in verse 24. Love is a mark of the church of Jesus Christ. It was mentioned earlier in John 13. That's what, that's what Jesus was telling them as, as a foundation in the upper room. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. And then he goes on to say, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love. That's how the world sees that we are his disciples, by our unique love that we have for each other, our passionate love that we have for each other. From all socioeconomic and racial backgrounds, we love each other. And the world takes notice of that kind of love. Love for each other is the crown jewel of Christian community. It is to be your new family. Members of Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, this is to be your your new family. Now, I think that's what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples that day when his mother and brothers came and they couldn't get in him. He was teaching inside a house and somebody came and said, hey, you're, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside and they want to see you. And you remember what he said. He, he, he stretched out his hands and he, it says he, he, he motioned to the people inside the room and he said, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of God is my mother and brothers. Church certainly doesn't replace your family. But you are to love them and be devoted to them in the same way as your family. It's not an easy thing to do. When God called me into the ministry 20 years ago, I had no idea where God was going to place me. Well, that's not true. I really wanted to be near family. And I limited where I was going to look because I wanted to be near my blood family. The Lord brought me eight hours away from my family, 20 hours away from Carrie's family. It made it hard to be with our families consistently. But I have to tell you, it had a wonderful side effect. Because we didn't have our blood family relations close, it, it kind of, it was a kind of a grace of God I haven't recognized. It forced us to embrace the community of faith up here and really open our hearts to you and really passionately love you and devote ourselves to you and treat you as our family. Now, this was nothing that I thought about. It was kind of a, you know, the grace of God that you don't know in your life. But now looking back, I think, my goodness, how wonderful of the Lord to force us, not force, but put us in a situation where we had to embrace our church family like our real family. 
And that is what the gospel call on every believer's life is. Opening your heart and devoting yourself passionately to the local church. And that passion of love is shown through actions. That's why it says love and good works or and good deeds. David Lee is a journalist for the BBC and he recently moved from America to London and and he was writing that rather than haul all his stuff from London, he said, I've become one of life's subscribers. Lee writes, looking around at my rented apartment, I no longer need my DVDs. I subscribe to Netflix. My music, Spotify. My books, Kindle. If I'm going out, forget the car. It's Uber or Lyft. Take out food from DoorDash and Grubhub. If I'm cooking for myself, I get my ingredients through a delivery service, Blue Apron. In a culture like this, it's easy to become a subscriber to church. I'm just going to subscribe to church. We see this in the consumer mentality that has blossomed and bloomed in, in church cultures over the last 20 or 30 years. It's the mentality that thinks about church in terms of what they can get out of it. Does the church meet my needs? Does it have a youth group or a senior group? Does it have a women's ministry or men's ministry? Do they play the right music, the right style of music? How about the length of service? The church consumer basically is always asking, what's in it for me? Feed me. Care for me. What can you do for me? And if that's the language of your head and heart, you're tempted towards subscribing to church. But what... The writer of Hebrews is saying what the word of God is saying is commit passionately to church through love and good deeds. What are you doing? How are you committing yourself to church? How can you use your gifts for the betterment of of these people and God's kingdom? Because love is not just spoken but shown. Isn't that what we see in the gospel? God so loved the world. Just cut it off there. No. God so loved the world that he was willing to give his son. And his son sacrificially limited himself into a human and he lived a perfect life. He, he, it was hard for him to live that perfect life. We've talked about that in chapter 4 of Hebrews. It was as hard as it is for you and me to not sin. Hey, but he did. He, he obeyed God's will perfectly, earned heaven completely, but instead of saying, it's all about me, he said, no. Love and good deeds. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross for Blake and for anyone else who will put their trust in me. And I will, I will take the penalty for his sins. I will die on that cross. And I will give him my righteousness. 
so that every time God the Father looks at him, he sees a perfect work and is pleased. And I will die for him. I will absorb the penalty, absorb his sin, and die a horrible, painful death and pay the penalty for sin, the justice of God. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day, conquering sin, the curse, and death. And if you trust that, if you believe that gospel, if you, if you understand how, how you cannot save yourself, and that you are in a situation that you cannot get out of, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Because he who promised will be faithful to you. That's what love and good deeds commitment is. That's what passionate love associated with actions looks like. God shows us that love displayed through the sacrificial action in Christ. And we're encouraged here to do the same. You just can't say, I love you, and not do anything. That's why I'm so encouraged by so many things that are going on in in and around our church. I'm encouraged by this small group of men who come here Friday mornings and work on the church. They're loving you and me through their good deeds. They don't export them. They don't say, let's call a plumber. Well, sometimes they do. <laughs> but they do them themselves. I'm encouraged by the child care ministry during our service. Do you realize that there are men and women downstairs right now caring for the young ones, sacrificing being here? And it is a sacrifice. The financial team of Kent, Joan, and Dory who show their love by their good deeds of hours and hours and hours of bookkeeping and financials. By the KBC volunteers that that have signed up and, and will come here in a couple weeks and give all week hours and hours showing their love by their good works. By the men leading worship. You see the men up here leading worship? That takes prayer and preparation. And they care and love for you so much that they're willing to do that. By the music ministry. I'm here all week. I I, I see what goes on behind the scenes. The care with which the music is chosen and, and practiced. And then they lead you so gracefully. And on and on and on and on I could go. But the point is you cannot just subscribe to church. You have to be passionately committed through love and good works. But the second passion we're to have is a passion for worship. Look at verse 25 with me. It says, let us, not, let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Corporate worship, what we're doing right now, is the primary activity that you are called to. What we're doing right now is the primary activity that you are called to as a born-again believer. It is the reason for the exodus. Have you ever thought about that? 
when he was explaining, God was explaining to Moses why he was calling them out, it says, so that my people may come out and worship me. And every time Moses went to Pharaoh, he repeated that refrain, let my people go so that God's people might come out and worship him. The whole reason for the Exodus was worship. The reason for the tabernacle being built was worship. Fifty chapters are dedicated to the tabernacle. Worship is important to God. The reason for Solomon's reign, he was to build the temple, the place where God would dwell and his people would come and worship him. It was the reason that God brought his people back from Babylon. Why did he bring them back? So that they might build the second temple and begin worshiping again. And what happened when they got back? They stalled. They built the foundation, lost interest. Isn't that our hearts many times? We just lose interest in worship. Worship is the primary for the Christian. It's crucial. It's vital. It's critical. It's central in your life. And what is so critical and primary to God is so many times greeted with apathy with believers. Apathy. Think about it. It's modeled in Scripture. They were brought out from the Exodus. They, they went to Mount Sinai where they were to worship, right? And what did they do? Turned right away. They built the golden calf. Solomon built the temple. But we read in the very next chapter that he spent twice as much time and twice as much money on his own palace. Shows you right where Solomon's heart was. People were brought back from exile yet completely stalled in the primary reason they were brought back. Simply put, our flesh wars against what we're doing right now. And that's why the Hebrews encourages us passionately not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. There's apathy towards worship, apathy towards giving God praise and adoration and worship. You all know that, you've heard by now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, that our word worship comes from the old English worship, right? Meant to proclaim and give worth to something you consider precious and invaluable. Giving your attention to, devoting yourself to something precious and invaluable. When you come to worship each Sunday, you're proclaiming that Jesus Christ is precious and invaluable. And here's the hard part of the sermon. When you don't come to worship, you are proclaiming just the opposite. You consider Sunday something optional. If you consider worship something movable in your schedule. If this hour can fairly easily be replaced with sporting events 
or hiking or a seemingly really important trip, shopping, or maybe this hour in our vacation atmosphere, or maybe this hour can be easily put to the side when we have visitors. You're actually proclaiming how irrelevant Christ is in your life. At 9.15 on the morning of February 16, 1989, George and Vera Blaznik got a call that their son Ben had been in an accident. As they approached the intersection, they could see the flashing lights of the police cars and the ambulances, and they could see a, a huge pool of blood in the middle of the intersection. Vera's first reaction was to jump out of the car, she said, and somehow collect the blood and put it back into her son. She recalls, that blood for me at that moment became the most precious thing in the world because it was life-giving blood and it belonged to my son, my only son, the one that I loved. End quote. Her husband, George, recalls a feeling he had. He noticed that cars were driving right through the intersection and right over his son's blood. They had other things on their mind, I'm sure, getting to work, going shopping, going to sporting events. They were just driving right over his son's blood, and he felt as if each person was disrespecting the life of his son. Now consider how God feels when we say that hour is optional. This other thing has to take priority. When we drive right over the son of his blood to get to swimming or soccer or shopping, or sailing. There's a man recently I read about in the UK that had not missed a live Birmingham City soccer game for 38 years. He watched over 1,800 matches in a row from the age of 15. He once even discharged himself from the hospital race to Wales and watched them play. He had given up family gatherings, Christmases, because he loved that team so much. That man invested his devotion, his time, his attention, his money into something he considers ultimately worthy and precious, the Birmingham City soccer team. Brothers and sisters, that's the type of fanaticism we need about God's worship. And we each need help in this area because our our flesh wars against this. You think, I never go through this? You think I wake up every Sunday and go, awesome, love it, can't wait. No. My flesh wars against this. I wake up and I go, it's going to be such a long day. 
was one of the purposes, the Hebrews is saying, of Christian community, to stir one another up. We need each other. To spur each other on in worship. If we see a brother and sister struggling in this area, if you see a brother and sister or notice a brother and sister that hasn't been here a week or two, call them up. And with gentleness and respect, invite them back. Early African converts to Christianity were earnest and regular in their worship and in their private devotions. Each one reportedly had a separate spot in the thicket where they would pour out their heart to God. Over time, these paths to these places became well-worn. As a result, if another believer began to neglect his time with God, it was soon apparent to others. And they would go to them and kindly remind them, saying, Brother, the grass is growing on your path. That would be a good encouragement. And that leads us to our last point, which is passionately encourage one another. Look at verse 25. Says, do not neglect meeting together as the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. One day the devil decided to have a garage sale. On the day of the sale, his sharp tools were hung and marked with a price. Envy, ten dollars. Hatred, jealousy, deceit, fifty dollars. Lust, lying. Pride, $400. Set apart from the rest was a harmless-looking tool. It was unmarked, but quite worn. Someone asked the devil, what's the name of that tool? And the devil said, that's discouragement. Why have you priced it so high? And Satan said, because it is more useful to me than all the other tools combined. With it, I can pry open and get inside a man's heart, even when I cannot get get near him with other tools. It is badly worn because I use it on almost everyone. And so few people know that it belongs to me. Brothers and sisters, following Christ is hard. My mother used to tell me when I was young, Blake, the Christian life is the most exciting, the most meaningful, the most purposeful life you can have on this earth. But it's hard. It's true. It is when sin so easily ensnares, isn't it? When doubt creeps in. When temptation woos. When persecution disheartens, when cultural pressure presses in, our bodies break, our plans falter, our dreams die. Not to mention that our flesh many times is bent towards discouragement. And Satan prowls around like a lion looking to use that tool, find a seam in our life to pry open and insert discouragement. Add it all together, and from time to time, the strongest Christian can slip into the slough of despond, as 
as John Bunyan wrote. The Christian life can be discouraging. You can get stuck in discouragement. That's why we need each other so desperately. That's why we need the body of Christ displayed in a local congregation so desperately. That's why you need to commit yourself wholeheartedly. I mean, th- think about the image of, of those men and women that, that climb up these tall peaks like Everest and K2 and Kilimanjaro. You see them, and they're roped together, aren't they? They're roped together so that if one slips and falls, they're not done. They don't slide down 3,000 feet into a crevice. You can help that person up. You can help each other reach the top. Earlier in Hebrews, the author writes in chapter 3, exhort one another every day as long as you call it today. Every day. Have you thought about that? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only, this is the word of God, only what is helpful to build people up in their time of need. Garrett Kell writes, Encouragement is like oxygen to the church. It keeps hearts beating, minds clear, and hands inspired to serve. You know, but I would venture to guess that most of us, most of us do not naturally go in the way of encouragement. Some of you do, I'm sure. You have the gift, or you just look at people in a positive light. But most of us, myself included, need help in this area. How do you encourage somebody? I just want to give you a few ways. First, be specific. Tell that person specifically why you are encouraging them. Second of all, be spiritual. Consider the brother and sister through spiritual lenses. Telling a person that they're a good cook is really nice. But it does them little or no spiritual good. But telling a person that you have seen them grow in humility in how they handle a certain person's criticism. That's encouraging. Third, be, be scriptural. Use scripture as much as possible. Consider saying something like, I was reading in Proverbs today and it says, and I think that describes you. Third of all, prayer. Pray. The Lord, and maybe you've had this happen in your life, it certainly happened in my life as, as recently as this week, where I get a, an encouragement the exact time I need it. If you pray, Lord, who help me to encourage somebody, the Lord will answer that prayer because he knows. Like I said, I was having a, a difficult couple weeks and I was feeling discouraged, and I received a letter in the mail this, this week, and I just want to read a little portion of it to you, because I, I think it was so timely. He wrote this, We were blessed to participate in your Sunday morning worship service when we were there in Maine recently. The people of your church 
were so hospitable. I took note of the congregational involvement in the ministry. It was just so very good to see and hear God's people being God's people. He goes on to write, The singing was inviting. The prayers were so transparently honest, so relationally edifying. The message was rich and full. The celebration of the Lord's Supper was truly celebratory. And so our lives were enriched, he says. And for that, thank you for your pastoral effort that has borne meaningful and fruitful church attendance when we have been far from home. It's like oxygen, isn't it? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, use it to sculpt us, to challenge us where we need that. Spirit, don't let us forget what we've heard if we need that. Encourage us where we are discouraged. Spirit, use these words for your good in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.